0: All right, Ezra the 7th chapter and the 11th verse. Last Wednesday we covered the first 10 verses of the book of Ezra. And we saw uh, a man of God and what it takes to be a leader in the kingdom of God uh, in the life of Ezra. Amen. All right, verse 11, if you have it, say "Praise praise the Lord. Now this is the copy of the letter that the king... Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words, the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. Forasmuch as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God which is in thy hand. Now jump over to verse 23, please. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Again, verse 23, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Everybody said amen. amen. Father, we come before you. We stand before you in your presence before your throne. We ask you, Lord, to cleanse us and purify us, Lord Jesus, of anything and everything that would defile us in Your presence, sinful thoughts, sinful words, or sinful actions. Lord Jesus, we thank You for cleansing us with Your blood tonight and forgiving us of all sin. Lord Jesus, that we may hear from You, God, and walk in Your statutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. As we pointed out to you last Wednesday, Uh, 60 years or so separate the 6th and the 7th chapter of the book of Ezra. 60 years, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah are no longer on the scene. And we have Ezra come on the scene with a second exodus from Persia uh, with the authority of the king Artaxerxes. So we have moved from Darius' kingship, who allowed them to finish the temple of the Lord, and then 60 years have passed. That means Xerxes, um, Darius' son, has ascended to the throne. He is the one in the book of Esther, 486 to 464. And then we see in verse 1 of chapter 7, the reign of Artaxerxes, that is 464 to 425. Now, Ezra goes up from Babylon, verse 6, in 455 B.C. And he arrives in Jerusalem, verse 8, in the fifth month, which is August of 455 B.C. Okay, say praise the Lord. Lord. Now, we come to the area in the the word of God here in the book of Ezra where we have the king is giving Ezra the permission uh, to return so we have some backtracking here to look at. Now what we want to focus on tonight is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That means that God is in control. He's behind the scenes. He's in control of everything that is happening. Do you believe that tonight? And then we have the providence of God. The providence of God is His unseen hand at work uh, bringing things into his purpose and will in this world and so first of all let's just briefly talk about the sovereignty of God in his choice for a man of God Ezra we've already looked at Ezra this great man of God in verse 10 look at it please okay the sovereignty of the Lord at this time to allow Ezra to take a second exodus of people back to Jerusalem and God is raising up this man, Ezra, who is a great, great man of God. In fact, the history of the Jews state that Ezra and Nehemiah are the two greatest men in the history of the nation of Israel. If you can imagine that. And they are comparing these men with like Moses and Abraham, etc., etc. For them to say that Ezra and Nehemiah are some of the greatest men or the greatest men in the history of Israel is saying a lot. So Ezra and Nehemiah are a part of bringing back uh, the people of God and establishing the worship of the Lord back in the land of Israel. And so I guess that's why they are seen uh, with high reverence like this. Ezra is a scribe. He's a priest. He's a prophet. He's a great man of the Word of God. He's a revivalist. He's going to turn people from their backslidden condition uh, to the Lord. He's got great zeal for God. And he, as a priest, will begin to establish and set up the worship of God in the temple of the Lord. So this is the sovereignty of God in raising up this man, Ezra, who wasn't even alive, probably, when the first exodus took place under Zerubbabel. Okay, But he did write the book of Ezra and everything in the first six chapters. But in the seventh chapter, we begin to deal with the autobiography of this man named Ezra. So he is a great, great man in the history of the kingdom of God. He is the one who established the canon of the Old Testament. He is the one that came up with hermeneutics. How to interpret the word of God. Uh, so say the Jews. And he's, so he is a tremendous man of God. And so God in his sovereignty has raised up this kind of man. And we saw the steps that make up a godly leader in his life. Last Wednesday. The sovereignty of God. Giving him as a gift to the people of God, It was a gift from God to the people, uh, Ezra, as a man. And so we saw that. Now in verse 11, we see the sovereignty of God in working through a pagan king. A pagan king, a Persian king who's not even saved. Do you understand that? An unsaved man, a heathen, a pagan. But yet God is stirring this pagan king up to bless the people of God. So when His sovereignty, God is on the throne and He's behind the scenes ruling and reigning even through pagan kings, making them do what He wants them to do in His providence to fulfill His will and His purpose. So the sovereignty of God raising up a man of God like Ezra, the sovereignty of God raising up or stirring, I should say, the heart of a pagan king to allow the people of God to go uh, with Ezra up to uh, Israel. So if we look at verse 11, it tells us this uh, letter that this king wrote as God stirred him up. And then I will give you just basically after that, verse 27 and 28, we see Ezra praising God and worshiping God in a doxology of praise. For everything that God was doing behind the scenes, so it's God who gets the glory for what the pagan king is doing. So we see sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, recognized by Ezra at the end of the story. Okay, so praise the Lord, everybody. You ready? I went real fast. I talked real fast. I hope you got some of that. Okay, verse eleven. Let's look at it. Now, we are obviously talking about King Artaxerxes, correct? Now, Xerxes was the husband of Esther. Okay, you with me? And he reigned all the way up to 464 B.C. Now, after he passes on, Artaxerxes rises to power. And this is the king that we're reading about and studying about in the seventh chapter. He's also the same king in Nehemiah's day when Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls. So that's the same king we're talking about. He's the one after Xerxes or Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Are you with me here? Okay, so verse 11, let's look at the letter. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. Now, obviously, there's only one true king of kings and lord of lords. And that's Jesus. But this is what they called themselves, King of Kings, because they had so many different states in their kingdom. They called themselves the king over all the kings of those various provinces, okay? So really, there's only one King of Kings, but we see that this man Artaxerxes is called the King of Kings. Now, he's a great man. Artaxerxes is a great man. But he doesn't have the rank that Ezra does in the eyes of God. Ezra is more important and has a higher level of rank than even the King of Kings, as he called himself, Artaxerxes. In fact, if it wasn't for Ezra or Nehemiah, we wouldn't even probably know about this man. We wouldn't be reading about him tonight in the scripture, we wouldn't be studying the letter that he wrote. We wouldn't know much about this man if it had not been for Ezra and Nehemiah. So even though he's the king of kings, in God's eyes, Ezra is of higher rank than him. Because Ezra is a priest, he is a scribe, Amen. he's an interpreter of the law of God, and in his own right, he is a prophet of God Almighty. So he has higher rank than even this so-called king of kings does, or to Xerxes, we wouldn't even know about him probably unless you go to a history class if it wasn't for this great man named Ezra. Now the world looks at men in a certain way and they call certain men great. But God looks at other men that may be insignificant in this world and God says, no, they're higher rank and they're greater than those men because they are the servants of the Most High God that God has sovereignly Sovereignly by his own choice has chosen to do things in the kingdom of God and because they represent the kingdom of God and they serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then they are more important than the King of Kings in an earthly sense. Do you understand that? Say praise the Lord. I believe it was Abraham Lincoln that said this. He said the highest office in the land is the pastor, not the president. When he looked at a pastor, he said, their office is higher than my office. And in reality, that is true through the eyes of God. It may not be that way through the eyes of men, but it is that way through the eyes of God. The highest office in the land is the pastor uh, that serves the Lord God in the ministry, in the kingdom of God. Say amen. amen. And obviously, most of the time, those men are insignificant when it comes to the world's view, but not from God's view. So this man, Artaxerxes, known as king of kings. All right. But Ezra is greater than he is. The Bible tells us that this sees in verse 12, King of Kings, he writes this letter, and it's a permission letter to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven. He's an interpreter of the law of God of heaven. He says, Perfect peace, and at such a time, I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel. And of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. So it is a basically like a hall pass. All right, it gives them the ability. Now you need to understand something here: these people are still slaves to the Persian king, and the reason why they are slaves is because they apostatize away from God and disobeyed the Lord, and walked away from true worship in the past. So they went into captivity. When they went into captivity, they were slaves to the Babylonians and then slaves to the Middle Persians. Do you understand that? And so they just can't move in and out any anytime they want to. They have to get permission from the sovereign or from the king that is in charge over the kingdom because they are still looked at as slaves under His rulership. And so what we have here is we have the sovereign that's ruling the earth, Amen. the Medo-Persian king, are you with me tonight? Giving slaves a permission slip, a hall pass, to go back to their land because they're not free to do whatever they want to do. Amen. Amen. So this is what we see here Artaxerxes is doing. He is giving them basically a pass to go. And in verse 13, uh, he tells us that whoever wants to go, it's of a free will. It's choice, it's not commanded that they go, but it's based on the choices of the people that want to go back home. All right, you with me? Okay, verse 14. For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God which is in thy land. Now look at the reverence that Artaxerxes has for God and has for the law of God. He's not even saved. He's a pagan king. And he's called king of kings. And he's given a permission slip to a bunch of slaves to go back to Jerusalem. But yet when he writes the letter, he acknowledges God in a reverential way. And that's amazing to me. Now, why that amazes me, because especially verse 23, that's where I'm going to focus and that is on verse 23. So I'm just going to give you a little background before we get there. There's something about this king that's not we don't see written in the pages of Scripture. He has a fear and a reverence for God for some reason. Now I don't know if it's because of Ezra's great testimony. Okay, as Ezra's been a slave in his kingdom, that this man Artaxerxes looks at Ezra and respects this man's love for the Word of God, his walk with God. Probably that's the reason why Artaxerxes has so much reverence for God because of the testimony of Ezra the scribe, okay? But there could also be another reason for his reverence for God. And it's not written down in the Scripture, but this is my thought. That it is possible this man Artaxerxes knew the prophecies of Daniel. And I'll explain that to you when I look at verse 23 because that's where the Lord wanted me to focus is verse 23. Because he had a fear of the wrath of God coming upon him. Why would he feel that the possibility of the wrath of God would come on him in his kingdom? Okay? So whatever. If it's Ezra the scribe and his testimony his walk with God that has brought such a reverence from this pagan king or if it's the prophecies of Daniel that he may be familiar with this king reverences the God of heaven. And he's pagan. Hallelujah. And in some cases, hate to say it, I think this pagan king who was not saved and didn't know God had more respect and more reverence for the God of heaven than even people who claimed to know Him. Because this man starts writing a letter and he talks about the greatness of this God, this God of heaven. He even puts a decree in this decree if if they don't serve. If you don't mean business, basically this king says, if you don't mean business and going back, and serving God. If you don't mean business in serving God, are you with me? Then don't go back. And if you do go back and you don't mean business serving God, he said there's going to be penalties that come upon you out of the law of Moses. That's what a pagan king said. A pagan king says you better mean business in serving God. This guy, this man, a pagan, heathen, unbeliever—if you understand what I'm saying—has a reverence for God. To me, that could be an example for every one of us in this church tonight, including your pastor. Say, praise the Lord. So he starts writing in verse 14 again. For as much as thou art sin of the king and of his seven counsellors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, you're going to go check it out, right? According to the law of thy God which is in thine hand. He says, he's my God. He said "It's thy God and you've got his law in your hand and you're going to go and make sure that everybody is uh, operating in true worship unto this God the way they should be. So Ezra the scribe, the interpreter of the law who is a priest is going to go back and make sure that these people are doing it the right way. That they're worshiping God the right way. That what's happening in the temple is correct, okay? You understand that the people's lives are lining up with the Word of God. And this king recognizes that uh, this God of the Jews must be worshipped a certain way. And this God of the Jews must be worshipped according to His law. And this king recognizes that he's got a man named Ezra who is a representative of the King of Heaven. God, and this man can interpret the law. He knows the priest code. He knows how the temple should be run. He knows the things of God. He knows the Word of God. And so he's going to allow this man to go back and make sure everything is according to the code. According to true worship. Do you understand that? With great reverence and great respect for Ezra and for the God of heaven. And so in verse 15, notice this. He is going to give him... Uh, all kinds of wealth to take back with him to buy sacrifices with, to sacrifice to the God of heaven. Amen. Oil and wine and and all kinds of meal and, and anointing, oil. All this is going to be supplied is going to come out of the king's treasure. Now you talk about a reverence for God. He's going to give permission for these people to go back home and, and he recognizes everything has to be set in order but he says, I'm going to help finance it. I'm going to finance even the sacrifices that are made. So, you're going, we're going to get some money out of the king's treasure, and we're going to pay for it for you. That's amazing to me that he had that kind of reverence and that kind of respect for a God that he didn't even worship, for a God that he, that he didn't, even, didn't even claim to be his own. But yet, he was willing to give offerings to this God. And it wasn't small. let's look at it it was not small a small offering that this king gave the Bible says he's going to carry the silver the gold which the king and his counselors had freely offered unto the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem and all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon with the free will offering of the people and of the priest offering willing for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem y'all with me here today? He said, I'm going to take something out of the king's treasure and I'm going to finance it and also free will offerings from the, own, from the people of God themselves in order to do this, correct? Verse 17, That thou mayest buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs, their meat offerings, their drink offerings, offer them upon the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. Does that, that, this is, that's mind-boggling to me that He's going to finance even the offerings that would be offered to God in Jerusalem upon the altar. Verse 18, Whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that to do after the will of your God, the vessels also that are given for thee for the service of the house of thy God, those delivered thou before the God of Jerusalem. So we remember the vessels uh, that were given to Zerubbabel to take back as well at the beginning of the first Exodus, is Correct? Now there's some more vessels that are added to this because they recognize the ever-increasing growing worship of this God and the need to carry the blood and to carry the incense within it and all of these things. And he wants to make sure there's plenty of vessels for this glow, growing worship of the living God. Make sure you got enough vessels to carry the blood, enough vessels to carry the incense, so on and so forth. And so the king is supplying all of this to Ezra. Say praise the Lord. <clears throat> Verse twenty: Whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. You need more than I'm giving you," he said. "Come back, or you know, just 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 let me know, and I'll I'll give you some more money out of the king's treasure. Now, what's his motive? Why is he doing all of this? Because he's no, he doesn't claim that this is his God. He doesn't claim to be a worshiper of this. What is his motive? I've already read it to you. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Verse 21, I even I, our desert, sees the king to make a decree to all the treasures which are beyond the river that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe, or the law of God of heaven shall require of you it be done speedily. But He said, put a little boundary on it, you know. He said, if you need any more, we'll give you some more, but we'll put a little boundary on it up to a certain amount. You with me? Verse 22, unto a hundred talents of silver and to a hundred measures of wheat and to a hundred baths of wine and two hundred baths of oil And salt without prescribing how much? Say, praise the Lord. Now, let me just go through these numbers real quick. This is what the king is willing to offer. He said, up to a hundred talents of silver. That's three and three quarter tons of silver. So we read it, we say, okay, a hundred talents of silver. No big deal. We think that's pocket change. He said, I'll give you up to three and three quarter tons of silver. Amen? That's a, none of you have three and three quarter tons of silver. You probably don't, some of you don't even have three ounces of silver. And this king is going to give three and three quarters of, a, of tons of silver, up to that amount, to finance the work of the living God. Well, he wasn't poor, was he? So we have unto uh, uh, a hundred measures of wheat. Say a hundred measures of wheat. And to a hundred baths of wine. To a hundred baths of oil. hundred baths of wine. A bath is about seven, six to seven gallons. So He says, I'll give you 600.7 gallons of wine and I'll give you 600.7 gallons of oil. And that's a lot of gallons. Six hundred. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because one bath equals about 6.7 gallons. So six to seven gallons per bath. And he says, I'll give you a hundred of those of oil and wine. 607 gallons of wine and 607 gallons of oil. Say, praise the Lord. Along with the wheat. And then he says, also salt, because you have to have salt. Levitical priesthood have to have salt to offer the sacrifices with. Okay? And he says, I'm not gonna, we're not going to set a, you know, a, time, or a boundary on that. Whatever's needed in the salt, we'll give you the salt. All right? So we got a lot of provision here that the king is willing to give to the house of the Lord. Praise God. You with me? Now, here is the reason why this pagan king who does not worship God and is not even saved is willing to recognize the importance of the worship of God and that it be done right according to the law of God and that he allows a man who is an expert in the understanding of Scripture, Ezra, to go back with others and then finance it up to that level. There's a reason why he's doing this. And he'll later on in this same chapter will put the priesthood as a tax-exempt people to motivate them to leave Babylon and to go back home. The king says, you'll be tax-exempt. That's a pretty good incentive to want to leave Babylon and to go home. Why would he do all of this? Well, the Bible is clear. He tells us, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons he is concerned that the wrath of God would come upon him now why is he even concerned about that because presently Persia is in great conflict and they are, they've gone through some disasters Okay. And this is what I want to point out to you today. i want to just point to the background of this king here, Artaxerxes. What is going on? Why is he trying to protect himself and his sons, his kingdom, from experiencing the wrath of God upon him? Right. We have to back up to Darius, the king who allowed them to finish the temple, followed by uh, Xerxes, who was the king uh, of uh, the book of Esther, And now we come to Artaxerxes. We've got to back up in time. Because Persia is going through a time of disaster. And this is what is motivating this king Artaxerxes to do everything that he's doing. He says, I want to avoid the wrath of God. I want His divine favor. Because the history of the Persians they are going through one disaster after another. And so when I read that, I go, I need to get into the history. I need to find out what is this king worried about? What is going on in the history right now? What is taking place in the world that causes this man to be concerned about the wrath of God and want this God's favor in his kingdom, in his life? What is it? What is going on? And so I went back and I did a little research on the history. You ready with me now? Alright, y'all remember Darius. Darius is the one in the 6th chapter that allowed them to build the temple of Israel. Correct? To, to complete the temple. You with me so far? Okay? Now, Darius, in his reign, it was going really well. Okay? The Jews completed the temple in about 515, around 520 B.C. Somewhere. Now, they started at 520, started working on it to finish it in 520, and they completed it at 515 B.C. Okay? Now, when Darius has given that decree for them to rebuild the temple and to complete the temple, things are going really well for Darius in history. Darius is conquering territory. He's expanding his borders as the Jews over in Jerusalem are building that temple. So if you will, in the sixth chapter, uh, you could write there Darius in 515 when the temple of Israel is completed in 515 under Darius' decree. It started in 520. It's completed in 515. That at that time, Darius, the one who allowed the temple to be rebuilt, his kingdom is expanding. So if you understand this then, all a king has to do is look back in history and see his predecessor, you understand, when that man gave a decree for that temple to be finished or completed, He can look at history and he can see Darius 1. What was going on historically? That man's kingdom was expanding. It was growing because he blessed the kingdom of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? His kingdom is expanding. He's expanding his borders. So that he goes historically, you have to study history to get this. He, He makes a march through Thrace. And he conquers Thrace, all right? Part of the territory comes under his rulership called Thrace. How many ever heard of Macedonia? Okay, Macedonia agreed to make an allegiance to Darius, the one who allowed the temple to be complete. So Darius, his kingdom is prospering, his kingdom is expanding. It's expanded through Thrace and Macedonia has uh, promised allegiance to him. So everything is going really well because Darius is behind the decree to allow God's house to be built. You understand? If you do, say praise the Lord. Now, after the temple is completed and Darius passes on, what we need to also realize, though, at the closing uh, time of his kingship, things started happening, alright? He was expanding the kingdom, but all of a sudden, we have a problem because Greece is rising to power. Okay, you with me so far? Say with me, Greece. Now, in the book of Daniel, go to the 8th chapter. In the 8th chapter of the prophet Daniel, Is everybody with me now at this point? In verse 20, look at it, please. Okay, verse 20. It says, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. You with me so far? Okay, So what we have is a vision of Medo-Persia. Now, it comes in the form of a sheep, ram, or a male sheep. Stay with me, okay? This male sheep is seen in this vision, and God interprets this male sheep, this ram, to be Medo-Persia. Now, in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel... Remember, Babylon was depicted as a lion with a man's heart standing up on its feet. Babylon. Then in the seventh chapter, it tells us that following the lion, Babylon, Medo-Persia would rise to power, and it's seen as a bear lifted up on one side. In Daniel 7, after the Medo-Persian empire, we see a leopard with four heads, very swift leopard with four heads, Moving through the land and conquering the bear of medo Persia, the leopard being Greece. After the leopard, then we see a nondescript beast with ten horns, one little horn rising up among the ten. You understand what I'm saying? And that beast represents the Roman Empire. Now look at this. In the eighth chapter, God gives Daniel a vision about Middle Persia, the bear in Daniel seven is seen as a ram with two horns here in Daniel 8. Now, why does God show Daniel in the 7th chapter that the Medo-Persians are like a bear lifted up on one side? And then in the 8th chapter, show him the same Medo-Persian empire and show uh, this empire is now a sheep, a male sheep with two horns, Medo-Persia. Do you understand? Why did God do that? you understand? Same kingdom, same world power, barren seven, he uh, uh, or a ram in Daniel 8. Well, I'll explain that to you in just a moment. But then we go on a little bit further here. The Bible tells us in verse 21, we have another farm animal. Just like we have a farm animal, Uh, in verse 20, a sheep that is a male sheep, a ram with two horns, Medo-Persia. Now we see another farm animal, and it's known as a buck goat, or a he-goat, or a shaggy goat. So it's a farm animal. This farm animal, this he-goat, is Greece. And in Daniel 7, Greece was seen as a leopard with four heads. But in the 8th chapter, it's seen as a farm animal, a shaggy goat. Same kingdom, but described by a different animal. You understand what I'm saying? Now, let's keep reading here. The Bible says, as we look at it, uh, verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grecia. So we have the interpretation, right? The Bible tells us that the ram in verse 20 is who? Medo-Persia, that ram of the sheep. And then we find out that the he-goat or the shaggy goat, the Bible tells us who that is. It's got got a horn in the middle of its head. One horn, okay? this rough rough goat. And he's moving so fast that his feet aren't even touching the ground. Okay? And verse 21, God says, okay, the ram is the Medo-Persian empire, but following him is this he-goat. And it's moving so fast over the earth its feet's not even touching the ground. He said that goat is Alexander the Great or the Greek Empire that will conquer the Medes and the Persians. Do you see that? Okay, look at it with me. Verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grecia and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Okay. And so we see here, <clears throat> the Bible says, verse 22, Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And the Bible tells us, it's telling us what is happening here. After this king of Greece is defeated, his kingdom will be divided into four. Just like the four-headed leopard in Daniel 7, now we see God says, okay, you've got this rough goat, this he-goat, this shaggy goat, that's going to move very fast it's going to conquer the Medes and the Persians the ram and um, you with me so far but it will be defeated and divided that kingdom of Greece will be divided into four just like the four headed leopard. you with me so far okay so then when we look at the passage then prophetically God shows us history he says there will be in Daniel 7 there will be Babylon you understand the lion with the heart of the man standing upon its feet. Then you follow that, the bear. Medo-Persia will conquer Babylon. It'll be lifted upon one side. You understand that? Three ribs in its mouth. That is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he says, following that, the four-headed leopard. That's the Greek Empire. And then following that is this nondescript beast, which is the Roman Empire. You got all that down? Okay. But then in the eighth chapter, he focuses on two. The Medo-Persian Empire, the ram, and the Greek empire, the he-goat. And he changes the description to a farm animal instead of a ferocious beast. Now, first of all, the reason why he does that is because when you have the lion followed by the bear, followed by the leopard, followed by that other beast the Roman Empire, when you have those rising to power, they are ferocious in their dealing with each other. So the Medo-Persian bear will conquer Babylon. It's going to be ferocious. It's going to be violent. And the leopard is going to conquer the Medo-Persian bear. It's going to be violent. And then the nondescript beast of Rome is going to conquer uh, the Greek leopard. And it's going to be violent. But when we get to the 8th chapter, God says, okay, I'm going to take those same kingdoms of Greece and I'm going to give them farm animal characteristics. Because their relationship to Israel is not as ferocious as their relationship with each other. Okay? So that the Medo-Persian empire is friendly toward Israel. That's why Cyrus, king of Persia, first decree allowing Zerubbabel to go back home. And now we have, you know, later in history, a second exodus under Ezra when Zerubbabel and Haggai Zachariah are off the scene. Another king who fears God is favorable toward Israel and favorable to the God of Israel. Great reverence for this God and blesses the people of God. So we see, God says, it's a ram of the sheep, farm animal, in its relationship to Israel. And the leopard of Daniel 7 which is Greece, is now depicted as a a shaggy goat, a farm animal, because Greece was friendly toward Israel. So That's why God changes the imagery. But the whole point being is this, is that God through the prophet Daniel has already revealed to the Medo-Persian empire they will be friendly toward Israel. But they will be conquered by Greece. And this king right here that we're talking about, Artaxerxes here, can look at the history. He can go back and see Darius when Darius allowed the temple to be uh, completed. Started 520, finished in 515 B.C. That he saw the expanse of Darius, the king of Persia, in his relationship uh, to Israel, allowing them to build the temple. So he expands his, his territory. But then things begin to be disastrous for Persia. Darius... At that time, now at that time, we have Greece rising up. Okay? And Darius tries to go and conquer the Greeks. When he does, he gets whipped. Say with me, Darius. Okay, you know the king I'm talking about now. The same one that allowed the temple to be built. He wants to, okay, he's got Thrace uh, Thrace under his belt. He's got the allegiance of Macedonia, but he wants to conquer more of Greece. He starts having problems. He has a battle that is known as the Battle of Marathon. Okay? Darius does. He goes to war and fights with the Greeks, the Athenians, in Marathon. Now, I'm going to give you, I've got the chronological timetable here. I'm going to give you the dates so you'll understand where we are. You with me still? <clears throat> okay. Now remember, 515 is when the temple is finished, correct? 512 is when he expands his territory, Darius does. But then 499 B.C., just like God prophesied out of the book of Daniel, we have the Ionians begin to rebel against him. Darius 1. Okay? And then in 490 B.C., we have the Persians are defeated in a place called Marathon. How many of you ever heard of Marathon? You ever heard of the word Marathon before? Okay. Whenever the Greeks... Now, you've got to understand something here. Excuse me. The Persians amassed huge, huge numbers when they went into battle. That's why they're depicted as a bear. Okay? A lumbering sort of, uh, you know, maybe not too... Well, bears are agile. But they're not as agile as a lion. But the, you got the largeness of a bear. And so when they conquered territory, they amassed sometimes 300, 400,000 soldiers to go into battle in that day. They were like a lumbering bear as they conquered. you understand that? With those kinds of numbers, say around 300,000 going into battle, okay, in, the, in this area called Marathon, something happens. And the Persians get whipped. Darius, the king that allowed them to rebuild their temple, who's expanding his territory into Thrace and got the Macedonians' allegiance, now when he goes to fight in Marathon, the Greeks whip him, if you can imagine. And the Greeks don't have the, the size of army that Darius had. But they're quick, they're swift. They're like the leopard or they're like that uh, goat that doesn't touch the ground when it runs. Very swift. They're small, but they're swift in their striking. And they defeated the huge, large army of Darius, the Persians. Greece is rising to power, just like God said they would in the book of Daniel. Do you understand? So disasters are starting to take place for the Persian Empire. They're getting concerned here. They're going off into battle, and it's, you know, they should be winning these fights. But for some reason, they're not winning these fights. Disaster's coming on their kingdom. Darius has lost the battle in Marathon. And there's a Greek runner that that runs for 26 miles and gives the news to the Greeks that the Persians have been defeated in battle. That's where the race, the 26 mile marathon, comes from. It comes from that man running with the news that Persia has been defeated by the Greeks in Marathon. Say amen. So Darius is defeated. He goes off the scene, and Xerxes, the husband of Esther, rises to power. And this king, he goes to war with the Persians, and Greece is defeated in Salamis. Say with me, Salamis. Xerxes is defeated in battle. Oh, this is horrible! Now we've got two defeats. We got a defeat in Marathon, we got a defeat. Uh, uh, Xerxes is defeated. Praise the Lord in Salamis, and it's not going very well for the kings of Persia. And when Xerxes, as a Hazuris of the Book of Esther, is defeated, that's where you see the Book of Ezra come on. Uh, the Book of Esther come on the scene because after his defeat. At Salamis, Xerxes or Ahasuerus of the book of Esther goes back home and he drowns his sorrows in his harem. He licks his wounds after being defeated at Salamis by the Greeks. And at that time, that's when he chooses Esther to be his wife after he's just been defeated in battle by the Greeks. He's licking his wounds. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's getting his comfort through his harem and making a choice of his next wife. You know, after Vashti, that's the background. Okay. So now Artaxerxes, uh, Xerxes, or Hasaeus of the Book of Esther, he passes on. Now we come to Artaxerxes, the one that's written the decree in Daniel in, in Ezra chapter seven, and he can look at the history and the disasters that have come upon his kingdom. He he knows the history of the the defeat of the Persians at Marathon and the defeat of the Persians at Salamis. He knows how Darius got defeated, how Xerxes got defeated, and now he's sitting on the throne and he's a Persian leader and a Persian ruler. And he's concerned. Looking at the history and the disasters that have come on his kingdom. You see, so that God is using the defeat of the Persians at Marathon and then at Salamis, really, His sovereignty, His providence behind the scenes. As Greece is rising to power, the four-headed leopard, as Greece is rising to power, the he-goat and defeating the bear and defeating the ram. Are you here tonight? Just like God said it would happen, it's happening. And so as He looks at these Jews, insignificant people, you would think. Insignificant people. Uh, 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 so far as the world is concerned. Hallelujah. That this is the God who gave a prophecy to Daniel that the Middle persian Empire be overthrown by the Greeks and the Greeks are rising rise to power and they're having victory over armies that should not be defeated in battle. And this has got his attention. That's why I'm saying to you, the reason why he has so much reverence is number one, it could be the testimony of Ezra. It could be also that he's got a knowledge of the prophecies of Daniel. And he can look at it happening while he is alive. He can look at history under Darius and then Xerxes and now himself. He can see it coming to pass just like God said it would come to pass. The Bible doesn't say he has a knowledge of this scripture, this prophecy. But I would not doubt if he does, doesn't have a knowledge of it. Ezra, a scribe, knowing this prophecy of Daniel, would not have told this king. I find it hard to believe that Ezra, this prophet and priest and scribe of God, the interpreter of the law of God, would not tell this man, hey, what's been going on? Darius' defeat at Marathon and then Xerxes' defeat at Salamis. It's all recorded in scripture. Come on, somebody. And it's put a fear of God upon Artaxerxes that God is going to pour out His wrath upon His kingdom. And he doesn't want anything to do with the wrath of God. He wants the divine favor of God upon him. Say, praise the Lord. Now, you know the story. You know the end of the story. And After he does all of this, well, the Bible tells us Eventually what happens, the Greek Empire overthrows the Medo-Persian Empire under Alexander the Great, that he-goat, that rough goat, that shaggy goat that runs so fast, doesn't even touch the ground. The leopard of Daniel chapter 7, that will be four divided into four, is going to move so quick and so fast, even though it is small in size, that by the time you get to 334 B.C., the Persians have no answer for Alexander the Great. He is so fast and so swift, yet small. He is conquering them left and right. And by 334 B.C. they have absolutely no way to resist Alexander the Great. You understand what I'm saying to you? And it's said by 332 B.C. Alexander the Great is going to die in Babylon. Amen. Early, at the height of his power, just like Daniel 8 said, the height of his power. Boom, he'll be cut off and his kingdom will be divided into four at age 32, 33, at the height of his power. He's cut off suddenly after conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. Do you understand what I'm saying? But this is the very thing that was motivating Artaxerxes to allow Israel, to allow a second exodus, to allow Israel to go back and make sure you got the worship right. And I'm going to give you permission to go back and I'm going to give you finances, three and three quarter tons of of, of silver. And I'm going to give you uh, six to seven hundred gallons of wine, six to seven hundred gallons of oil. I'm going to give you salt. I'm going to give you bread. plenty, Everything you need uh, so you can buy everything you need to offer sacrifices to the God of heaven who dwells in Jerusalem. I don't want to, you know, if you can understand, I don't want to mess with this God. I'm going to make sure He's happy. Hallelujah. <laughs> we don't. We don't want him to get upset. We don't want him to get angry. We don't want to experience his wrath or his, we, no, 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 We're gonna take care of this God in heaven. Hallelujah. He doesn't claim to worship him or serve him, but he's got a reverence for God because he knows that he's. He knows God, it cause it'd go real bad for him. We want to make sure we make this God happy. Hallelujah. Going to make sure we got the worship right, and I'm gonna. He's. I'm gonna make sure I finance it too. Praise the Lord, because I don't want God mad at me. He didn't even worship God. Well, hallelujah, he's a smart, pretty smart guy if you ask me. I'm telling you tonight, he's got, I think he's got more wisdom than most people sitting in the church. They don't even care if they, if they make God angry, make God upset by their sin, by their unfaithfulness, but not this many. No, no, no I'm going to take care of it. Hallelujah. We want him happy. How I, mean, I want God happy. I want God happy. I want God pleased with me. Because I'm going to tell you something tonight. If you make God angry, Jesus, help me to preach tonight. It's a dangerous thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. We don't want to upset God. We don't want to grieve God. We don't want to make God angry. We don't want God's wrath in our life. I want God to be pleased. Because in His sovereignty, friend. He not only raises up men within the church to be a gift unto his people so that those people can lead, those men can lead the people of God and true and faithful and pure worship. That is a gift from God to the people of God. But God also is behind the scenes silently and invisibly operating through even people in the world so that God can use them to either bless me or to curse me in Jesus name. I want God on my side said Artaxerxes the king I don't want him mad I want his divine favor in my life are you here tonight because all I got to do is look at the history even a people who claimed to be the servants of this God when they, when they forsook true worship and laid aside pure worship and entered into idolatry this God sent them into captivity using pagan leaders are you with me tonight to discipline his own people this man's wise, I think. Very wise. I want to be wise tonight, friend. I want God's blessing in my life. Yeah, and if it don't go my way, so listen to me. I want to tell you something. The devil comes and sit in your, in your room and talk to you and talk in your ear. Well, God's let you down, you know. Well, why don't you just won't you think this through? Why don't you serve some other God? Won't you do some other thing? Are you kidding me? He's still God. He's still sovereign. And He deserves to be feared. He deserves to be reverenced. He deserves to be worshipped no matter what's happening in my life. And I know He's on the throne tonight and I know He's in control and I know His providence is, is working behind the scenes even when I don't understand it. But I have a responsibility knowing that God is in control of all the events of history. And sovereignly can work through anybody He wants to. Even unbelievers. To either bless me or curse me. Are you here with me tonight? To have that understanding of this God, I also need to understand that I have a responsibility myself to make sure that I remain faithful to God. That I remain pure before God. Are you here tonight? As as Brother Jonathan did so So awesome, wonderfully Sunday night teaching us how to worship God in a time of trouble. I appreciate my brother getting the job done. He got the job done. He heard from God. He delivered a message to you. That's the sovereignty of God. I don't ask people to preach in this pulpit unless God tells me to have them preach in this pulpit. And he got the job done. You know why? Because it was God's gift to you sovereignly to tell you, to give you a key. What do you do in a time of trouble? You worship him because he's on the throne. I praise God for that word. He's worthy of worship. It doesn't matter what the trouble is going on in my life. He's worthy. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. When I stood up here and we prayed for the sick, I felt an anointing in this house. God is in this church tonight. He's alive. He's real. And He came in here such a powerful anointing. Yeah, I know He's in control of everything. I know He's sovereign. I know he's in His providence He can do whatever He wants to with whoever He wants to. But I as, as a person have a responsibility, even though I know He's in control, I have a, responsible, a responsibility to be faithful. And if a pagan king if he did know the prophecies of daniel if he read them in daniel 7 and daniel chapter 8 and came to the conclusion i need to make sure this god is happy because he's he's the god that spoke of our downfall and i fear his wrath and i fear his wrath upon my what my sons Now let me tell you something. The only way that he could possibly know in my mind that he could possibly know that not only was he in danger of wrath coming on him, but wrath coming on his sons which came to pass historically is if he had some inclination that the judgment of God was going to fall upon the Persian Empire and he's doing everything he can to appease God to make sure to try to keep it from happening. Would to God that the leadership in our nation had that kind of fear of God? Amen. That they, had, they, they would have enough understanding to realize that when you lead a nation away from God, that it's going to bring certain judgment upon that nation? Are you here tonight? Would to God we had a, a leadership in our, over our country that understood the importance of having the church and having the worship of the true God in the midst of that nation and making sure everything is in place to take care of the church of the living God? Do you understand that tonight? With God, we had that, but we, do we even have it in the church? We want to point a finger at the at the leadership in Washington, but do we have it in the church of the living God tonight? Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, knowing that everything He's ever said in His Word will come to pass. It will certainly come to pass. In Him it's, the Bible says, Peter said, in Him it's yes and amen. It's guaranteed. It will come to pass. He is going to come back. He is going to judge the nations of this world. We need to fear and reference this awesome God. And it certainly came to pass. But I feel in the Holy Ghost to share something with you tonight. It's not just natural powers that we need to be concerned about. It's the spirits behind those nations that came with those nations, when those nations rose to power? What kind of spirit came when those nations rose to power? When Babylon rose to power, the spirit that came out of Babylon was witchcraft. Witchcraft. Sorcery. Do you understand? Astrology. That was the spirit that came out of Babylon. If you want to know what a Babylonian spirit's like? It's about witchcraft. Do you understand that tonight? And following Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire rose to power. And although it was friendly toward Israel, it was full of indulgence. That was the spirit that came forth out of the Persian Empire was a spirit of indulgence, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life was the spirit that came out or came forth from the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Greece that conquered the Medes and the Persians. The spirit that came forth out of them was the spirit of homosexuality. And learning without God. These are the spirits that the church has always been at war with. It's the spirits that the, the Lamb of God has been at war with. It's at war with astrology. It's at war with uh, necromancy. It's at war with all of those things of witchcraft, of Babylon. It's at war with the indulgence, uh, uh, the pride of life, the lusty of the eyes, the lust of the flesh of Persia. It's at war with that homosexual spirit. It's at war with learning and education that leaves God out of it. And then we have the Roman Empire following the Greek Empire and what came the spirit that came out of that empire was a spirit of the voice of the people which is a spirit that says I will do whatever I want to do. And these are the spirits that the church of the living God that you and I are at war with. Because in Revelation chapter 13, the Bible says, when you see the beast of the end times, it is an accumulation of these powers before it. Of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All come together in one. So that at times in the history of the church, the end time church, you will be at war with that spirit of witchcraft. At other times, the... St- period of indulgence you will be at war with that spirit at times you will be at war with a homosexual lesbian spirit of the Greek in power and you'll be at war with education that is learning without God and if you're not fighting that spirit then you'll be fighting the spirit that says I'll do what I want to do and nobody's gonna tell me what to do that's the spirit of the Roman In the name of Jesus, i preach to you tonight. To understand. It's not just natural, natural, national powers or beasts that we see. It's spirits that the church needs to recognize that you are at war with. And at what time we cease to be faithful to God. At what time... We set aside the true worship of the true and living God, the one God of the Bible. At what time we do that, the spirits of those nations will conquer you. The spirit of witchcraft. The spirit of indulgence. The spirit of homosexuality and lesbianism. And education without God. And a voice, the voice of the people that says, I'm going to do it my way. At what time we forsake the true worship of the true and living God, what He will do is He will give us up to those spirits. And those spirits will begin to dominate the church of the living God. It won't be a physical army that comes and attacks you maybe. But it definitely will be a spiritual army that will come and attack you. That's why it's extremely important for us to get the lesson of a pagan king. I don't want to fall out of the favor of God. Are you here tonight? I want divine favor. I don't want His wrath. Kingdoms are subject to God. The rise and fall of powers are subject to the king. He's still on the throne tonight. Let us be responsible See, it's a balance. There's two coins to it. The sovereignty of God. He's always in control of everything, but there's another side of the coin. My responsibility as an individual. And Ezra understood that even though we've got this king who's been stirred up sovereignly by God to do what he's doing, Ezra recognized that he had to do something with that. That he was also responsible uh, to serve God in his generation. Even though he knew that God was behind the king's letter. He said, I've got to do it. I've got to put it in action. Say amen. Say praise the Lord tonight. Jesus, help me tonight. See, your pastor's not blind. I'm not blind. I might not know everything about what's going on in your little world, but I'm going to tell you something. You'll be at war with witchcraft. You'll be at war with indulgence. You'll be at war with the spirit of homosexuality and lesbianism. You will be at war with that spirit. It's the voice of the people. that will do whatever I want to do. I'm going to tell you something today. The only way that you can defeat those spirits is submit yourself to the true and living God that's sitting on the throne and learn to worship Him and offer a doxology of praise unto Him just like brother preached that Sunday night. And when you continue to be faithful... You remain faithful. You remain pure. You remain holy. And you continue to worship this God. Guess what? He will defeat your enemies. He will give you... He'll raise up men of God, powerful men of God to preach to you. He'll, he'll even use people in the world to bless your life. When a, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So that you won't, even, you won't just have the favor of the church, you'll have the favor of people even the world. That people will come and start blessing your life and you're saying, wow, why are they doing this? It's because God is well pleased with your walk. That's why they're blessing you. They don't worship the God you worship, but they know the importance of it and they realize it and they see it in your life. You have a responsibility and so do I. To recognize that when God is moving behind the scenes like He did in this king, that I have a responsibility to get the job done in difficult times. Raise up an Ezra in difficult times, dark days. A man that'll get the job done. Do you understand? But it's God's blessing, and they recognize it was God's God's hand behind the whole thing. Do you understand what your pastor's saying? These spirits of the end times don't lose sight of the fact that we're in the last days. Because if you lose sight of the fact that we're in the last days, you will lose sight of the, the warfare that you're fighting that's against the beast. And those spirits of those powers are still in the world today. Come in against the church of the living God. Do you understand what your pastor is telling you tonight? I am warning you in the name of Jesus tonight. That's all I can do is I can stand up and give you the Word of God and then I'll give you a solemn warning, a a charge from God. And that charge is for me as well. To remain faithful to my God and to remain pure to my God and continue to worship my God in spirit and in truth. And in doing so, God will bless you in the church sovereignly. And He will bless you outside of the church sovereignly, even in troublesome times. To have the favor of God. That's what a pagan king was after. I tell you tonight, by the blood of Jesus, I give you a warning to remain faithful and true unto God, to be a people of God, but I also give you good news. You have the favor of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because all these sacrifices that this King says, I'm willing to purchase all are a type of the blood of Jesus and His work of the cross. And by that, we have the favor of God. It's by the blood. It's by the blood. It's by the blood of Jesus. It's by the blood of Jesus tonight that I stand in favor with my God. I plead His blood. I prayed for His forgiveness tonight. I pray for His forgiveness, words, thoughts, and actions in my life and in yours. That we might have the favor of God upon our lives in a last day generation that the Lord gave warning to of a, a tremendous falling away, a backsliding. There is a spirit that is at work in this hour that you need to remind yourself of. It's the spirit of apostasy. And it is a spirit that will deceive you It'll come against you, it'll delude your mind, it'll delude your walk with God, it'll, it'll speak things, all kinds of crazy stuff in your head. And you need to realize the Spirit that is coming against the church of God. But you will be victorious. Because you will remain faithful. And you will remain pure. And you will fulfill your responsibility in the kingdom of God. And God will take care of, He's going to take care of His church in the end time. We've already seen the book of Revelation. We went through the whole book of Revelation and showed you God taking care of His church. One section after another. God taking care of His church. I don't have anything to worry about except one thing. And that is being unfaithful to the Lord and becoming impure in my life. Are you here tonight? I'm not afraid of the devil. I'm not afraid of any demon power. I'm not afraid of any spirits, the spirits that came forth of those those kingdoms and powers as long as I'm full of the Holy Ghost and I know I'm walking where I'm supposed to walk with God. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise so that little verse, verse 23, gives us the whole motive of this king. Why well, he did what he did because he feared this God. He reverenced him. And he wanted the favor of God in his life. I thank God for the blood. The holy blood of Jesus Christ. You might not like me, but I love you. You might not like my methods and the way I preach or what I do. You might not like any of that, but I love you. I'm going to tell you something. You need to realize that Ezra was a great man of God, but he was human Ezra was a sinner. He was born with a sinful nature, and God used that man to fulfill His call in these last, in that time of darkness and decay. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? When Haggai Zachariah, and Zechariah and Zerubbabel are off the scene, you still got a human being being used by God. I'm not God. I'm a human being. But I'm gonna tell you something. I do want to serve the Lord with all my heart. And you don't have to. It's just like the king said. It's, it's up to you. It's your choice. Nobody's going to force you to live for God. Nobody's going to force you to serve God. Nobody's going to force you to go to Jerusalem. Nobody's going to force you to go to heaven. Nobody! If you want to die and go to heaven, that's your choice! But I'm choosing tonight to be a Christian. I'm choosing tonight by being in the church house. And by preaching to you, I choose to be a pastor. I choose to be a preacher. I choose to be a Christian. I choose to be a servant of God. Tonight, I choose to stand behind this pulpit. I choose to preach to people who choose to be here tonight. So we just get that out of the way. If you're wondering if I'm human or not, I'm human. Come pinch me and you'll see. So get that out of the way. Praise the Lord. But I want to be faithful to my God. I want to live pure before my God. I want to live holy before my God. I want to preach the Word of God to you. I want to be a gift to you. But I remind you of those spirits that you're fighting in the end times, But they can be defeated in Jesus' mighty name. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fighting natural enemies. They're not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Cast down every vain imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and bring them to the captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Get your mind subject. Cast down vain imaginations. Get your head on straight. And you won't have to fear. You won't have to fear failing in this hour. Thankfully, heart of Xerxes, he fulfilled his reign and purpose in the earth and he went on. Before he saw the ultimate downfall of his power, his kingdom. But in his generation, he kept back the wrath and hand of God off of his kingdom by reverencing and honoring the God of heaven. And it wasn't until over a hundred years later that this man, Alexander the Great, this he-goat, comes on the scene, the first king of Greece that completely defeats the Persians. But Xerxes did what he could in his generation. Do you understand that the kings of Judah and kings of Israel could not keep the people together? You know why they couldn't keep the people together? Because in large part it was their fault. For the nation, the nation's failure, the nation's compromise, the nation's departure from God. It was the leaders' fault, the kings, the shepherds of Israel and Judah that were responsible really for the failure of the people because of their own lifestyles of immorality and because of that those kings could not keep Israel together but we see a pagan king who references God gathers the people and sends them home he had more fear of God than the kings of Israel and Judah did he could keep the people together because he reverenced God. And those other kings could not keep the people together because they didn't reverence or fear God. Come on church. Lord Jesus baptize us with an understanding of this, of this hour and this generation in which we live. We're in great battle. But guess what? We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. our Lord. So my thought today as I sat in my office was did Artaxerxes know the prophecies of Daniel? To me, it is a great possibility that he did because he feared the judgments of God that would come upon him and his sons. And he stayed off that judgment. He stayed off that wrath temporarily. By reverencing God and blessing the people of God. A man who did not even claim to be saved. That's amazing. Do we have that? Do you have that? Do I have that? It's a dangerous thing sometimes to become too familiar. Sometimes we just we just become too familiar, you know? We get, if you will, forgive me, but this is a reality sometimes, we get used to. We get used to the mighty moves of God and the Word of God. We, get, we become familiar, too familiar. And when you get real familiar with people, sometimes you lose respect for them. You have to be extremely careful. This man didn't know everything about the God of heaven. But He knew one thing this God could judge. He knew this God was a God of wrath and he knew he wanted divine favor from Him. He knew that much. Do we, real, do we believe that much tonight? I do. I believe that. I believe that you do. Praise the Lord. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? He said, you're going to serve Him? Mean business. You're going to serve Him? Mean business. That's what a pagan king says. Hallelujah. If Artaxerxes was alive today, if if God could raise him up from the dead, and he won't do that, but he's got the decree from, from him right here in the pages of Scripture, and now he's telling you tonight, mean business when you live for God. Mean business when you serve God. It would not be acceptable to a heathen pagan king for a people who named the name of Jesus not to be faithful to their God. Praise the Lord. If He were to stand, and really He is tonight in a sense, if He were to stand here tonight in this pulpit and preach to you, He would tell you mean business in your worship with God. Isn't God good? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. because I don't want wrath coming on me or my sons. Also, we certify you that touching any of the priests, the Levites, singers, porters, and, and, and those of the servants, or ministers of this house of God. It shall not be lawful to impose toll, tribute, or custom upon them. They're tax exempt. You remember the accusation back in the early part of the book of Ezra? They, the accusers of God's people said, you know, they, they want to do all this and they don't want to pay taxes. Are you kidding me? They're still paying taxes. And the king says... At this point, Levites, priests, Nephilim, the servants of the house of God, they're tax exempt. So here's a little incentive. If you want to stay here in Babylon or Medo-Persia, you know, and not go back to Jerusalem and and be a part of the priestly service and a part of the sacrifices which typify the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross His life. You want to be a part of that? He said, I'm going to give you a little incentive to go back. Uproot and go do the work of God. He said, this is a pagan, King, he says, you're tax exempt. That's a pretty good benefit, isn't it? Why well, y'all look at it like that? It's in the Bible. I didn't make it up. I promise you. How many y'all love God tonight? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that it is in this hour still in our country that when you bring offerings and tithes to the Lord it's tax exempt. Even in our nation right now. It may not stay that way, but it is right now. I mean, and that's not the motive or the incentive for you to give, but it's it's a pretty awesome blessing, isn't it? you be able to wrap that off of your taxes. And if you don't do it, you're dumb. but government needs my money so I'm going to make sure I take it well praise the Lord that's your philosophy you live by it hallelujah I'm going to take everything I'm going to take every exemption I can possibly take lawful, legal not going to lie about it amen are you thankful today Verse 25, And now, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God, it is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God and teach them, teach ye them that know them not. He says you're going to put a government in place to put magistrates and judges, so on and so forth. And it's, listen to me, it's going to be according to the law of Moses. And then this pagan king says, I'm going to back it up with my decree. Do you understand that? That the decisions that they make, the leaders that they set in place, the order that's in the house is going to be found in the Word of God. And that's the way the church is to operate. It's to operate according to the laws and the Word of God and the order that God has set up in His Bible. Amen? Amen. And if people don't obey those laws of God, He said this is what's going to happen to them. Judgment's coming on those that don't obey the law of Moses. And you're going to put people in place to make sure and enforce that order. Amen? Say praise the Lord. And... I love it. The king says, And all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know not, know them not. If they don't know the law of God. He said, It's your responsibility to teach them the law of God. He said, They're ignorant. If they're ignorant of the word of God, you're to teach them the word of God. Do you understand? But it's amazing to me that this this king of kings, he calls himself, says the law that's going to be over you is going to be the law of Moses that's in your hand. And you're going to set up officials that are going to govern according to that law. You're going to establish the order of God according to that word. And you're going to teach the people who don't know it. Amen. Verse 26 and who said will not do the law by God? And the law of the king. So see, I'll back it up too. Let judgment be executed speedily upon him. Wow. They judgment. We don't hear about judgment, do we? All we want to do is hear about the love of God. Hallelujah. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Next time I get somebody in the church that all they want to talk about is the love of God and their life's not right. And the reason why all they want to do is talk about the love of God is because their life's not right. I'm going to say, you're preaching Sunday night on the love of God. We'll see what you got to say. Amen? Well, we're not going to get into that, but the love of God is connected with commandments of God. We preached that to you Sunday morning. And we showed you seven sayings of Jesus a few hours before His death was about keeping the commandments. If you love Him, keep His commandments. If you love Him... A commandment, he said, that you love one another, and if you love him, you are going to keep his commandments. And we found out how to love each other according to John, First John, that the way you love him is, the way you love each other is by loving God and keeping his commandments. So you really don't love each other unless you love God and keep his commandments. So we found that out. And his his commandments are not grievous; they're loving commands. This guy says, "All right, if you don't if you don't keep the law of God, he said judgment. Now this is the type of the church, because the Bible says clearly in Peter that judgment must first begin at the house of God. Yeah, well, God judge the world? No, He's going to judge you first. He's going to judge me first. Amen. Judgment begins at the house of God, and first begin it first begins with us." Where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? It's going to happen to them. God's going to have to... If God... If, we, if we're if we going to make it in the kingdom of God by God spanking our seats and disciplining and correcting us, then we're scarcely be saved. Scarcely going to be saved. Where are the sinner and the ungodly going to be? They're going to be in hell. If God's got to chastise you and me and spank our seat in order for us to be... You understand? Where we need to be in God to make it to heaven... He said, where's the sinner and the... You scarcely are going to be saved. Where's the sinner and the ungodly going to appear? They're going to appear in hell. Can you imagine that? If God will spank and discipline the, the children that He loves so much? Can you imagine the wrath of God's going to come upon those people in hell? I know you don't want to hear that, but that's the word of God. And He said, judgment's going to begin at the house of God. Do you understand? Now... I love every one of But I am going to be honest with you, I don't know really what's going on with some of y'all because I haven't done any of you, I haven't done anything wrong to any of you people. For some of you to act like you act, I just it it's beyond me. I'm clueless as to what in the world is going on in your little pea brain. Because I have absolutely not done anything to any of you people. You need a checkup from the neck up. Go get your pea brain examined. Okay? And then come back and tell me what your problem is. Hallelujah. Talk to me like that. That's the way children are. Don't talk to me like that, Daddy. I don't like the way you talk to me. Well, I'm just asking you a simple question where are you? And it might not be me asking the question. It might be your God, your Lord saying, where are you? Where are you? Just be thankful. Hallelujah. I love everyone Just be thankful that I haven't dealt with you. <laughs> that I'm so kind and I'm so loving and I'm so merciful that all I do is just keep on loving you and I don't deal with you. I know some pastors that wouldn't put up with you for one day. They'd be setting you on a pew, man, making public examples out of you. you got a long-suffering pastor. I know you don't believe it, but that's the truth. Somebody say, praise the Lord. The The judgment begins at the house of God. God has set order in the church. You know why? So we can keep out that. Witchcraft spirit. Jezebel spirit. That could get a hold of anybody in this church. So we can keep out that spirit of indulgence and that spirit of homosexuality and learning without God. And that voice of the people, I'll do what I want to do. We keep that out. So we can be blessed of the Lord. That's what we want. I want to be blessed and I want you to be blessed. Hallelujah. But I love it. I haven't done anything to any of you. If I've done anything to any of you and I've been wrong, you come and you talk to me. You come and talk to me. We need to get that straight. Praise the Lord. Because I, I really don't understand. Forgive me, but I don't understand. So I'm coming here and I'm preaching the Word of God and some of y'all are off out in space somewhere. What's happened? Hallelujah. You know, and I'm a jealous preacher, man. I'm so envious and I'm so jealous. When Bishop's getting up there preaching, and you're standing there I know I don't have it like he's got it, but hallelujah! I, I got my ministry too. <laughs> Say praise the, Lord. praise the Lord. The reason why you don't do that when I preach, because you know, you know, I know about you. Bishop don't know anything about you. So you get up there and act all that, you know, act, put show on. He don't know anything about you. So you start doing it when I preach. I'm going to go look at you. Say hey, praise the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah, man. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to get done here real fast because I think we need to. I'm starting to feel the heat. The temperatures rising, man. <laughs> Getting hot in here. Okay. Praise the Lord. All you want to preach on love, come talk to me after church. You're to preach on love Sunday night. And I've got too many of you who want to preach on love. I would just set you up for the whole year. We'll have a different preacher on love every every night. Hallelujah. Y'all just, get, y'all just have so much love, it'll turn to syrup. Praise the Lord. Forgive me. You know what Brother Dice used to say? He said, nobody can kiss you like a charismatic. That's what he used to say. (laughs) (laughs) Just syrupy. Hallelujah. But Artaxerxes said, you're going to set order in the house. You're going to set leaders up in the house that are going to maintain the order in the house. And anybody that doesn't keep the law of God, they're going to be judged in order to maintain the order in the house. Because if you don't, do you understand that, church? Help me. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe I've made a mistake here in the sense that I haven't dealt with some of the things that's going on in you." And I'm sort of maybe I'm not trying to overlook it, but do you understand? Maybe I haven't. Seen it. What's going on? Questioning where you are, because it is the responsibility of the leaderships of the church to make sure the order is in is in the house by the word of God. If there is no order and if there is no consequence for violating the word of the Lord, this thing will go crazy. It will go crazy overnight. So if there's not order in the house, you know ultimately it's on me. It's on me, and I take that. I take it. It's on me. Okay. I'm doing everything I can, though. I really believe with everything I can to try to keep this thing going the right direction. It's getting crazy. Can you imagine with order being set in the house? Artaxerxes said, make sure you set leadership in the house. Make sure it's according to the law of Moses. Make sure the order's there and if they don't keep it, then judgment's coming. Can you imagine? It's crazy without it. I mean, it's crazy with it. Can you imagine how crazy it would be without it? If it's this crazy with it? Overnight, we'd be turned upside down. Bunch of bananas running around. Do you, you hear what your pastor said? If we, as crazy as we are right now, with the order in the house, how cr- you talk about crazy? How I many y'all really, really strive to keep order in your house? And it's still crazy. Can you imagine how crazy it would be if you didn't try to maintain order in your house? That's what I'm saying. If we crazy as we are right now with order in the house, what would we be with that order in the house? I'd just, I, I just get a big old banana and hang it over the front door of the church. This is the church of the bananas. Come on in. Join the church of the bananas. They're all bananas. Oh, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Come on, get with me here. Start, stop acting like you were already in heaven. I'm going to ask you again: if you're as crazy as you are with order, how crazy would we be without order? I don't even going to call you crazy. You just call you banana, banana, big banana. It's not just stupid, it's dumb also. I quote one of our favorite cartoon characters.' I know who that who said that right Jeremiah who said that? huh It's not just stupid it's it's dumb Patrick yeah it's just not st- just stupid but it's also dumb. Boy, you know I'm really preaching good when I start quoting Patrick. Or whatever, whatever his name is, yeah, you know, star, or whatever. I don't know what in the world. But see, that that's where we we'll, we will be. We won't be just stupid. We'll be dumb too. <laughs> you know what I mean? God, forgive me. I stand by the holy, sacred desk of God Almighty, and. Resorting to that. You know what I'm saying though, don't you? I don't think you'll forget what I said. I promise you. You'll probably forget everything I preach now about Daniel and the beast and all of that and all explain. But you will never forget it's not just stupid, it's dumb also. You will never forget that. And that's what will happen if you don't have leadership that maintains order in the church. That's our responsibility. Whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon them, whether it be unto death. That's severe punishment. Death or banishment. Excommunication. Remove them from the the assembly. Or confiscation of goods. Or to imprisonment. Amen. The order has to be there. But there has to be consequences. You know what I'm saying? That's why we really need to stay with the Word of God. Because what good is it going to do? or B for me to get up here and just give you a big old list of rules you understand and then when you break them what am I going to do you call my bluff what am I going to do that's why we better keep it in the book and with the book so we're not bluffing then. because it's not our own thing it's God's word and so we make decisions and we discipline, we discipline within the church according to the word of the Lord. Not according to a man, but according to the word of God. That's the way it has to be. Thank God for it. In closing, Ezra gives a doxology to God. Praise unto the Lord. Before I go on, are you thankful tonight for at least some order in a crazy world? And it's it's getting crazier. It's getting crazier because every man's doing that which is right in their own eyes. It's getting crazy. Let us, okay, let's just bring it down to this. Let's govern our lives by the Word of God. Okay? Let the Word of God govern your life. Ezra starts praising God, he starts blessing the Lord because he recognizes behind the stirring up of this king to do all of this that it's God. And I want you to see something about this man, Ezra. He says, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, all capitalized Lord, Yahweh, yod Hey bav Yahweh, the God of covenant. God gave His promise, He gave His word that He would do this, that He would restore them after a time of discipline and correction. And He's done it. He's Yahweh. I am that I am, the eternal God, the, the one who keeps covenant to the third and fourth generation. He's a faithful God. He's doing what He said He would do. He promised it. It's based in covenant. He is Yahweh, Lord God, Elohim of our fathers. He's the God of our fathers. He's been faithful through the generations. He's faithful to me. He's faithful to my children. He'll be faithful to my children's children if we're still here. God is faithful to the generations past. The a faithful God. He's praising the Lord. Just like Brother Jonathan preached Sunday night. He's praising the Lord. He's a worshiper of God. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? The house is already finished. It's been approximately 60 years since it was completed. It's already finished. But Artaxerxes, what he's doing is to beautify the house of the Lord. Not just to have it, but to beautify it. I think it's important that although you're the temple of the Lord, well, you can do it, look at it both ways, that you beautify your temple for God's glory. Amen? Say praise the Lord. But where we can beautify the church where we can. We've got a place where we can come and worship and praise the Lord and hear the Word of God preached and, and enjoy each other and enjoy God, you know, and enjoy His Word. It's important for us to beautify the house of the Lord where we can. I think the Citrus Sonya and I don't like to call people by name, but through the years, when we first got that church over in Brazos, that metal building over there. To my wife, putting up paper, thinking about paper, you know. Uh, wallpaper, just trying to beautify a tin building. Just to beautify the house of the Lord where you can beautify the house of the Lord. Another sister, Mary's soul, with these plants here and the plants out front and so on and so forth. And I mean, it's just, it's just like the book of Hebrews. The heroes of faith, you know. There's some you're not going to name. Some are named. And why is it just to beautify the house of the Lord? God doesn't forget those things. They're recorded in His Word. And in His book, you understand that? How people love God's house and want to beautify God's house and take care of God's house. It's important to the Lord. Not just to have a house, but to beautify it. And He's praising the Lord. That the Lord is the one which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. He recognized God's behind it. To beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And he hath extended mercy, loving kindness. It's a covenant word. Mercy. Hesed, Loving kindness. He's extended loving kindness to me. The sovereignty of God. He said, I see it working in this king. And I also see the sovereignty of God. Showing mercy to me, Ezra said. In order to be the man that he was in that generation, be able to do what he was going to do for God in that generation, Ezra knew it was the sovereignty of God, God's choice and His loving kindness, His mercy in his life. He's giving God the glory. He wasn't taking glory for himself. He's giving God the glory. For the king, the stirring of the king, and, and for the, the, the work of God in and through his life. He recognized he was nothing without God. And if anything's happening, it's because God was doing it through him. And it was the mercy of God that allowed it. Anything ever happens in and through any of us tonight, it is not because we're so greatly educated and so wonderful and and have you know have it all together. We're human beings. It's the mercy of God. I thank God for the mercy of God. Give Him glory. He's doxology praise. He had extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors. Those seven counselors before the king. Can you imagine the king? He calls him as the king of kings, the most powerful ruler in the whole world, is recognizing a scribe, Ezra, a priest, showing favor to that man, reverencing God and blessing the people of God, having the ear of a king by the mercy of God. His seven counselors. And it doesn't say seven there, but previously we found it was seven counselors. And before all the kings' mighty princes, and I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. He was strengthened. Literally, he was encouraged. He was encouraged. He recognized what God was doing. Let us be in tune with God so we can see God's hand to understand what God is doing. There's something that's not easy to do to recognize this is what God's doing here. What's happening in this king's heart, this is, that's God In His providence is sovereignly working in that king, stirring that king up. It's the mercy of God that He raised me up, you know, Ezra saying that in order to serve God in that generation. Do you understand that? And he is encouraged by that. But not only is he encouraged, he takes courage. See, it's one thing to recognize the hand of God upon you and to be encouraged because God's hand is upon you. It's another thing to do something because you're encouraged. He didn't just become encouraged He took courage. And as a result of that, He did something with it. I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord God. My God was upon me. He looked to God to be His strength. God encouraged Him. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. He was encouraged and He took courage. To get encouraged by the Lord then you take courage. You start putting it into action. Which means you start getting the job done. I got a job to do. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because the Lord's hand is upon me. and I'm encouraged by that. But now I'm going to get the job done. I'm taking courage. See, praise the Lord. You come to church, you get encouraged. Like, brother. man, brother, he just blessed me. But it wasn't him. It was God's anointing upon him. And you could just feel God. You feel God. You just and you were, I was encouraged by that Word. Brother Jonathan preached Sunday night. Encouraged by that. Okay, so I can get up and say, I'm encouraged in the Lord and not do anything. Not do anything. And then he said, I'm encouraged. The good hand of God is upon me. I'm strengthened by that. Now I'm going to do something. I'm going to gather some people. I'm going to take a journey to Jerusalem. I'm going to do something with this encouragement that I have. It's going to put me in action. It's not going to leave me sitting on the pew feeling good. Just feeling good, and that's alright. I'm going to do something with what I've got. And so that's what Ezra did with the innest doxology of praise. Recognize the sovereignty of God, but also His responsibility to be faithful to this sovereign Lord. There are two sides of the coin. God is in control. He's working everything out after the counsel, according to the counsel of His own will. But we have a responsibility to remain faithful and pure before the Lord. And when we're encouraged, let everybody know it because they see you're getting busy. They see you're serving the Lord. Praise God. You're up. You're doing something. You're not just sitting on the pew. You're active again. Don't just talk about, I'm encouraging God. And then come back to church the same way you did before. You're encouraging God. And when we see you the next time, we're going to see it because you're taking that courage. And you're doing something with it. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for your good word tonight. Your, your blessing upon us. Lord, I, I give you praise and worship. Lord, I thank you. I recognize you, God, tonight has moving among us, pointing us, speaking to us, helping us encouraging us